Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. As we are now firmly into the F1 season, three races in, we've had our first in-season test. Things are just moving along. Yes, but we don't I, have a race this weekend. We, we don't have. Well, that's not completely true. Well, we have Indy. Yes, there there is Indy this weekend um, that Fernando Alonso is supposed to be present at. He is actually there. <coughs> Um, he's been spotted around in and around the paddock of Indy. Um, uh, uh, well, of Barber. Of Barber, not Indianapolis, but of the Indy race, Indy car race. Got, got to wonder what he's thinking after, you know, he spent the all of these years in Formula One and they're bright and shiny and spotless um, garages and paddock area. And now he's wandering around Barber, which if it's Anything like the garages at Mid-Ohio means that it's kind of dusty. It's open to everything. There's no kind of air conditioning or anything like that. There's, There's no showers. Like well, the, the, the paddocks that they bring and they put in most of these places have like driver rooms and facilities. Those are all trailers behind well, the garage. See, that's the thing, though. It, it is, that's where it truly depends on the track. Mm-hmm. Because in my understanding is the European track, it, it, it's much like an indie at that point. With all of that stuff is in the RV clusters behind the garages, and IndyCar certainly has their complex. I don't know if I'd call them RV clusters, but tractor trailer clusters. The inter and those are pretty cool. The interconnected tractor trailers with the elevators and stuff are pretty interesting. So, so it, it's possible that that those facilities come from the tractor trailers, but the garages themselves. I mean, it's possible that teams are brushing away cobwebs and the random spiders and stuff that are you know to take up residence in the garages the rest of the year. Oh yeah, probably most likely. Um, so this past week, actually this weekend. Owen Wilson has actually spoken out about the whole Alonzo Monaco indie shuffle. Taking his seat, as Taking his seat. So the first thing that you want to know from Wilson's perspective is how this whole thing came down. I mean, he said that when they started talking about Alonzo possibly doing the Indianapolis 500, it didn't take a whole lot to figure out the math here. There are 33 cars entered into the Indy 500, and of them... Honda has 18. Yeah. So they had to find one of those cars. They knew that one of the committed seats was going to have to be a renegotiated contract. And, um, well, frankly, Owen was the low man on the totem pole. I mean, that's how that whole thing kind of fleshed out. Now, he says that ideally he'd like to be out there, um, and he'd also like it for, you know, he doesn't want to be there instead of Alonso. He would have liked for all people to be able to participate, but it wasn't in the cards. Now, what did he get for his fun of stepping aside? Um, well, A, there's a little bit of increased media coverage for this second-year rookie um, because he gave up his seat for Alonso. So he's getting the coverage from that. But he also got a guaranteed seat for 2018, which if he has a poor season this year, he may not have gotten. So, I mean, that's okay. kind of cool. Um, and he also got his sponsors have got increased placement 
at the Indianapolis 500 this year. So, I mean, when you think about it, that's what drivers actually, who they actually work for are their sponsors. Yeah. And so he was able to get those sponsors the the same, if not better, placements than they would have had if he had been racing. So those were the wins that came out of it. Um, now, Alonzo is in Barber, uh, checking out what the whole IndyCar series looks like, and maybe he got to touch a car. I don't know. Um before he rushes off to go race in Russia next weekend. Um, now, I want to find... Owen Wilson had some interesting thoughts. Now, he's never actually met Fernando Alonso. He's kind of hoping he might get to meet him on Sunday. I think it would be pretty big of Alonso to go shake the guy's hand whose seat he's taking. But that's just me. Um, but... Apparently, Owen's brother, the late Justin Wilson, has raced Alonzo in both F3000 and Formula One. So the Wilson family has circulated at least adjacent to the Alonzo orb of universe. It doesn't completely surprise me. So one of the things that um, Owen mentioned was that he feels that Alonso will experience a culture shock. Oh, you think? Going down to IndyCar. His quote was, In IndyCar, we have some of the greatest fans, and the access they get is incredible compared to the form- to Formula One, where it is super restrictive. That's going to be a big shock to him, just seeing how close the fans can get to him and how he takes to that. Also, the speed. He's concerned about the speed will be a big culture shock for Alonzo. Now, you could make all the jokes you want about the current fact that Honda in Formula One is running slightly faster than my 1971 MG, but... There's also a big bump up when you start looking at oval speeds, too. Mm-hmm. Apparently, in Indy, you go flat out the whole time. Uh, Owen basically described it as you hang on. And he says it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. Yeah, you know, I kind of question that right there. I mean, we have seen uh, drivers being told that they need to conserve fuel in IndyCar. We have watched cars stop on the track because they have run out of fuel we've we've seen to a lesser extent drivers told to conserve tires until pit windows opened up so that little argument right there of well it's flat out the whole time yeah i don't buy that one bit sorry (laughs) there's a limit and you just crossed it well okay fine now he did say that as a rookie in 2016 he felt the indy turbulence on that first lap was unbelievable that was the quote Um, It was an increase in dramatic speed compared to Indy Lights and other forms of racing he had participated in. Um, Now, just as a, you know, sidebar, who's Wilson's favorite Formula One driver? Lewis Hamilton. No. Pascal Verlein. (laughs) And it's not Pastor Maldonado either. Nico Hulkenberg. None of them. Oh. Of all time, it would be Justin. Wilson said of his departed brother. But there I are. I don't recall if uh, maybe he must have driven in Formula. I don't recall yeah, Justin earlier having. In the article, we just mentioned that he had competed against Alonso in, in Formula, Formula 3000, 3000 but not... and F1. I didn't catch that. Oh. Okay. Um, he's, 
But there are, this is the quote, um, but there are other greats like Ayrton Senna and Kimi Raikkonen. And honestly, Fernando. He is an incredible driver, and I grew up watching him win the World Championship in 2004 and 2005. Yeah, I bet that makes Fernando feel so young and vibrant. Well, it's the fact that you've got folks like Carlos Sainz. Well, most of the grid (laughs) who has come up and said, Dude, I grew up watching you on TV. I mean, I know. Jensen had the same thing, and, and so did Mark Weber. Yeah. It'll be interesting to get an F1 driver's take on the Indianapolis 500, get more fans to tune in, and get some momentum like we had in the 90s. And, you know, in, in some of my reading and looking at some of the other enthusiasts, the F1 in, enthusiast blogs and websites, they're saying that. Uh, yeah, I hadn't been planning on watching Indy. I don't really follow it too much. And some of their commentary reflects the fact that they don't really follow Indy all that much. Um, but they're like, I want to know what Fernando's going to do. I want to know how this is going to work out and, mm-hmm. and, and what's going to happen here. So, yeah, this is, if anything, a huge boost for Indy. I, I, I think it's got some really great crossover potential. And, of course, that leads to that moniker that Zach Brown keeps having of marketing genius, um, which kind of makes me gag a little. Okay, a lot. I freely admit that. Anyway. So from Fernando's move, and we're going to talk more about Fernando in a bit, um, let's go to somebody who is vehemently opposed to Fernando's move. Oh, Mrs. Fernando? No. Um, all of the grid? Uh. No, not all of the grid. A good chunk of the grid. Know your favorite troll in the world, Bernie of the Bad Hair, Bernie Ecclestons. No. <laughs> no. <clears throat> well, He's as opposed? He never would have allowed it in the first place because his feeling is it's Formula One and the world revolves around Formula One. And, you know, we know this. He wouldn't have allowed it because he couldn't have made money on it. That's the reality. Well, there's that. There's also the fact that um, it meant that he would not have been in Monaco, the crown jewel of the Formula One calendar. because Slowest and most processional race of the uh, entire Formula One calendar, but the crown jewel nonetheless. But. I like Monaco. I really do like Monaco. I'm not like complaining about it. Monaco. So, I like uh-uh. Monaco too. I don't think that it's, you know, I think that it's a fabulous race. I love this tradition. I love the history of it. I I agree. It's fantastic. But we have to be honest about what it is and how yeah. it plays in the greater schedule and calendar of Formula One. And it is the slowest and most processional race of the calendar. Is it technically difficult because of the walls yes and the weather and the weather and the tunnel because the dark tunnel to the bright light you're blind for a minute those things are important but it's still slow it is still incredibly difficult to pass and i hate to say the fact that we say that on every single racetrack but it is a difficult track to pass on. It is more likely to have a safety car. It's more likely to knock out people in catastrophic ways. I get it. But? But? It's still where there's a lot of money, a lot of business, and and everything else that makes Formula One tick happens there. I mean, there's... Arguably, there's three races 
in the entire calendar, two in particular, that it's the showy, the flashy, the business deals happen. It pulls in a lot of attention. Monaco, Silverstone, and who? Not Silverstone. Well, not as much Silverstone. Silverstone, yes, because it's local to so many of the teams, but actually Singapore is the other one because Singapore is so local to the Asian business market that Formula One is trying to attract. And, again, it's showy, it's flashy, where as much as Suzuka is a good race, it's not as showy and flashy. Okay. With the third one being um, the last race of the season. Whichever one that is. No, it, it it's... Nice, thank you. No, it's Yas Marina. Well, it was a big deal when it was the Brazil Interlagos last a, race of the season. But but not not like Yas Marina was because you've got that nice, pretty, luxurious five plus star hotel that's right smack in the middle of it and all the rich people and everything like that as opposed to brazil which is in the middle of the favela and you need extra security to make sure that you don't get carjacked on the way to the track so i think we're looking at at, at tracks as two different things i think you're looking at the tracks that attract the rich and famous but and i'm looking at the most iconic of the tracks but that's why Monaco is considered the crown jewel because it's of the rich iconic. and favorite famous and you know it, you, you've got the crown prince who sits and watches the race and that kind of a thing where you don't really have that at most of the other tracks I don't think there's any other track that requires black tie post the event probably not because you go to a reception at the prince's house if you win and you need to be in black tie but anyway since this is not the direction that we were going so at this point. You hair ran bun? off. <laughs> this is why our fans love us. Wow. How we ended up talking about Monaco two months before it happens. Because it's Monaco. <laughs> um, no. But this is why we are loved. You, your, your favorite troll has emerged from the hobbit hole that Chase Carey stuffed him into a couple of months ago. And his mustache can't push him back in the habit hall again? Well, I guess you got to parade him around a little bit before you let him get back in. Um, but as we mentioned a couple of weeks yeah, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Bernie reached out to several members of the Formula One press to announce that he was going to be in Bahrain and he wanted to have meetings with them and, and, and grant them audiences, as it were. <laughs> One of the things that was pointed out, and, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of folks' conversations. Um, we know he made appearances on uh, uh, Channel 4's coverage with Lee McKenzie. Um, ben Edwards appears to have gotten over at the BBC, appears to have gotten some time with him with Tom Clarkson. Um, it also, you know, we mentioned it, he reached out to Dieter Rankin over at Autosport and a couple of other journalists. One of the things that Dieter Rankin happened to point out, all these meetings happened in that big tower at the track. Right. In the past, when Bernie has held audiences at the track in Bahrain, because he does like to go to Bahrain, he has the top penthouse office. Um, this year he was down on the fourth floor. Ooh. Yes. So his stature has diminished a little bit. He's slumming. 
but he he commented on a very wide range of topics. Um, so we're 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 going to jump around a little bit, but there was a whole bunch of topics, and again, uh, we're looking at a whole bunch of the the various audiences that he gave while he so was. This there. is a summary of his commentary <clears throat> throughout the press audiences he created essentially okay so the first thing we'll talk about is you remember last week we spoke that there was talk of uh that he has expressed interest in purchasing uh interlagos correct you know along with how, how they charge too much for event fees and all that fun stuff right well he expanded on what this what this whole thing was and what those rumors were he says firstly it was never that i was interested in buying it it was the case that chase asked me when i go over there can i speak to which i had before the president about support for the race it seemed to me pretty obvious that he had plenty of other things on his mind rather than worry about formula one so we turned to the mayor of sao paulo because it's more his area the bottom line is simple he doesn't want to spend one dollar in support he wants to sell the circuit. So he said to me, would I be interested? No idea. It depends on what the terms are. So that's more or less as we've left it. We got him to agree that when it gets to tender, whoever buys it has to keep the Formula One circuit. Uh, so and this, he was talking to Dieter Rankin at this point, and Dieter said to him, so the race or the circuit? And Bernie said, the race. It will be there until 2024, sure, 100%. Okay. So there's that. So more about Bernie's current position. And, and, and he hits on this a lot in several of the interviews. Okay. Um, his current status with the organization and his opinions. Um, and I, this is the first weekend that I heard the word is to, that, that it's no longer the Formula One management uh, and the group that has taken over uh, from Liberty Media has taken over Formula One. They are now the Formula One group. So we have to start getting used to calling so them the Formula. Yes. Okay. We're, we're, we're no longer FOM. It's the FOG. So we've got to work on, on, on bringing that into our, our reference here. Um, so he said the reason why he was ousted was that the new owners believe that I haven't done a very good job. Um, and this was talking to the folks over at BBC. He said, the last thing they need is me to have any input because they want to change things. They know I would have changed them before if I thought they needed changing. So asked if he was missing his formula well, role, Bernie said, not particularly. I'm still in F1. What people don't understand is I'm still in the company. Everything's the same. I've been upgraded from chief executive to a much higher position. It's so high, I can't even see what's going on. It's not a case of things being difficult or not being difficult. You've got what you've got, and you've got to do what you can with what you've got. Imagine if suddenly a doctor said you've got cancer. Nothing I can do about it. You've got to get, it, get on with life as it is, which is what I'm doing. So asked if he believed that the new owners would continue to be able to bring in the $1.5 billion a year in re revenue, uh, Bernie said, no idea. They should do better. That's the reason they bought it, because they thought I hadn't done a very good job, and they could do better, and they probably will. <laughs> okay. So moving on to his conversations with Dieter Rankin okay, and his comments there. Dieter went on a much broader range of topics with Bernie. Um, 
he asked a bit more about, you know, Bernie's opinion about being ousted. And he said, I don't quite know what they're going to move on to because basically what they bought was like buying Starbucks where there's a formula. How much milk do you put into the coffee and how much of this? And there was nothing really to do. What they can do, which is what they thought they would be able to do, is probably help a lot with TV companies because that's their business. We were struggling always in America for TV, the same in China. I thought, well, at least they'd be able to do something there, hopefully as well. Maybe bring some new sponsors into the business because I think otherwise, basically, all the things that we were doing on a day-to-day basis would probably run all right. It is difficult not to detect an element of bitterness in his voice. So the obvious question that Dieter asked, well, are you bitter? He said, no, which I'm not sure I'm hearing that based on his answers. So then he asked um, Bernie, and again, Dieter Rankin asked Bernie why he didn't introduce some of the structures as uh, CEO during CBC's role in managing the sport. He said, well, Donald McKenzie, who was CBC's co-founder and chairman and formerly Bernie's boss wanted to sell for four years. He's blaming this all on CBC and and Donald Mm -hmm. McKenzie. Um, He says, so for four years, I was running the business and wrapping it in nice paper to make sure it was a good product to sell. So now, if I hadn't had to do that, probably I would have done what I said. Um, Of course, then it was pointed out that Bernie started hiking the fees and, and some of this other stuff before CBC got involved, as far back as 2005, um, and the teams earned a lot less back then. And Bernie said, well, things were a little bit different those days. If you look back at the fees I wish to charge them, it was all right, and the teams earned a lot less. Now they're getting 68%, and they used to get 47% of TV revenues earn- revenues only. That's how it started. Now, the bottom line number was really only 23% of Formula One management's earnings, but so Bernie's a little off here with his math. Um, So then the next question was Bernie's opinion of the present management team, you know, Mm. the the three-way team, and that's Sean Bratches and uh, Ross Braun and and Chase Carey. He says, Sean, I've never met. Now, if you think about this, apparently Sean Bratches was in the paddock all weekend, but (laughs) Bernie says that he never met Sean. Also possible, because Bernie probably never left his fourth floor cave. Well, the other thing is that the the Formula One group continues to operate out of uh, Bernie's Princess Gate offices, um, although the management itself works out of offices over in St. James Square. So it's not like they don't come within close proximity to each other. True. You know? Um, he says, this Sean, he's never been to a race except recently. So to stick somebody in and to say, you're dealing with commercial things. Chase I met yesterday again. I feel sorry for him because I think he's been thrown into the deep end and nobody's going to throw him a rope to save him if he's drowning. Okay. And then he gets on to Ross Braun. And this, this opened my eyes. Okay. He said, again, speaking specifically about Ross Braun, of course he's not capable. So... He was asked by, by Dieter, so you don't hold a very high opinion of Ron of, of Ross? He says, no, that's not correct. His position that he had both with Flavio Briatore at Benetton and at Ferrari was a different position to what these people, Chase, believe he was in. He's never had to do the job, apparently, which he's going to do now. 
And so Dieter asked, but he ran his own team, which won the championship. And Bernie goes, absolutely, because he cheated. And Dieter said, he cheated? That's kind of strong words. And Bernie said, well, I don't, but other people do. Um, basically, Eccleston's thought of, of cheating is, is that it, Ross managed to find that double diffuser back in 2009 that everybody else caught on to later in the season. That was part of the rules. He pushed the edge of the rules to the limit. And you stay just a hair's breadth on the edge of the rules, and that's where you find your speed, which is the Adrian Newey motto that Bernie has touted as being the best thing ever. Well, there's that, but also Bernie and then FIA President Max Mosley had agreed to allow Braun to keep the diffuser. And Bernie said, yeah, there's a lot of things we agree to, but that doesn't mean that they were legal. <laughs> <laughs> I got to interject here. I, I listened to his interview with Lee McKenzie. And, and his I, comments about social media? No. Oh, okay. No. And I've listened to his his answers to the questions about being ousted and the emeritus title and all of those things mm -hmm. that he's said. And, you know, I have to say, I'm starting to get a picture of Bernie as a pawn. Well, that's what he wants to put out there. And I'm, I was about to say, I think that that's what he wants us to believe, is that he he wanted to make all of these changes that people have been begging for forever, mm -hmm. but couldn't because he was being you know told that he had to do certain things to make more money or do this or do that. And do I really believe that Bernie was a pawn in this whole scheme? No, I don't. Clueless, yes, but... I See, I don't even agree with that because part of the reason that he brought CVC in was because he... And, and this was back before the big financial crash in 2008 was he wanted to take Formula One public on the... the I think it was the Hong Kong stock market. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason he brought them in was to make the financials look better. He, I mean, this was his decision. It wasn't like, oh, the, 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 the organization was struggling, so let's see if we can get somebody to go and invest, invest in it. He was deliberately looking for ways to boost revenue and boost money coming in long before CVC happened. He was setting up this structure, and it was that CVC was amenable to it. Well, and I think you're right there. I think that the biggest problem that he's facing right now is he put bottom line dollar ahead of the growth of the sport. Mm -hmm. And that's the position that we're in today. And he's complaining that Chase Carey and Liberty Media have come in thinking that he didn't do a great job when he thinks he did a phenomenal job because he's only looking at one number. He's looking yeah. at things in isolation and not looking at the growth of the sport. He's driven this thing and into the ground I, I wouldn't go that far and that at that level into the ground he's driven it into a, a situation where it needs rescuing everybody's talking about the fact that it needs rescue it needs improving and he did it because he fixated on a revenue number as opposed to looking at the big picture. And he's still looking at that because he's still looking at everyone else around him that he can blame versus the big picture. 
for his p- piece of his big picture. Because he had never once has said, it, you know, everything he says that I did this and it caused these other things to happen are always couched with, I did this because somebody told me to do this. It's not, I made a decision that led us down this road and that's why we're here where we are. He's not going to admit guilt in this. Yes and no. I, I think there's an even deeper piece to it that, and, and why we're hearing the things that he's saying. One, despite what he wants to claim, he's most definitely bitter about his ouster. Oh, he is bitter. Be, because his plan and, and what he had said for years and why he absolutely refused to come up with a succession plan was that he was not going to let go of Formula One until he was good and ready to do it. Mm-hmm. And the reality was his feeling was that he wasn't good and ready to do it until he died. And he was forced to let go of Formula One. So that's issue number one. And then issue number two was that he was forced to let go of Formula One and the new owners are trying to go a, a, I don't know if a 180 degree difference in his strategy, but certainly a different direction from what his strategy was with the, the sport. And... Yes, that's in agreement with what the rest of the world has been saying for years, but he has been in total control of Formula One for so long that it burns him to see this happening and to see what he believes that he built is being now taken apart. Well, he was always the kingmaker, and he's no longer the kingmaker. He's not even participating in the court. Yeah. And I think that that is such a slap to the ego that he's ceasing to honestly make good decisions and make good sense. So what does he have to say about social media? Because we know that he's always had such a brilliant view of that. Well, well, this was, was coming from his interview with Lee McKenzie over on Channel 4, where she asked him about his thoughts about uh, opening up the, the social media rules and, and having the increased engagement. And he freely says that... He doesn't agree with it. He doesn't see a point in social media. He doesn't see a point in increasing the engagement. And he believes that this is a move that will hurt them in the long run. He doesn't get it. Yeah. The whole world is moving on social media. The whole world is making reactions and making decisions based in what they see in social media. Um, at a greater speed than any other time previously because we've had access to information at a greater speed than any other time. And he doesn't see that this is the way things are happening. I, I don't get it. He doesn't because I'm betting that he doesn't email. I'm betting he really doesn't surf the Internet. So he still approaches things as they were 20, 30 years ago. I mean, you, you heard it where he, he talked about he thinks that um, Liberty and the new Formula One group can make uh, in-strides and changes in the TV contracts because to him, and that's where he built Formula That's how he earned Formula One, the money that it did, and that's how he built the sport into the power that it is was based on TV. And he doesn't want to see or can't see that those contracts are under threat. And they're not under threat because 
necessarily the broadcasters are going after him. They're under threat because there's been a culture change, and there is a culture change. Sure. And he needs, and and the sport needs to adapt to it. Yeah, and it's not. You know, he was refusing to make it. Yeah. Um, and the floodgates are going to open, and. you know, there's so many famous sayings. You, you you change or die. You adapt or you lose relevance. You are either moving forward or you're moving backwards. Standing still is a backwards momentum. Any of those phrases, any of them, become absolute truth when you apply it to what's going on. Well, they they have moved forward. Under Bernie, they have. They've done it slowly. But, you know, they did adopt um, HD broadcast. That was a big deal when that happened. It was an even bigger deal when they put HD cameras in the cars. Mm-hmm. We talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 3D has been tested, but all of the focus that Bernie was willing to do was around the broadcasters and their coverage. Because it's the technology he understood. Some of it is the technology he understood, and some of it, some of it is protecting that revenue stream. Mm-hmm. That revenue stream is huge, and he wants to keep them happy. But you've got to look at other ways. Right. So moving off of Bernie, let's talk about the other pro- – quite probably the only other person in the paddock who is as notorious for his financial stylings as Bernie Eccleston. B.J. Molly, of course. There you go. Because you don't say financial stylings unless you mean B.J. Molly. Or Bernie Eccleston. Yeah, but financial stylings is a phrase that you have coined specifically for (laughs) B.J. Molly. (laughs) And him going in and out of hiding and the... On again, off again, uh, relationships with defunct um, sponsors on the Force India car. Well, as you'll recall, um, Mr. Malia fled to England in 2016, March of 2016. He fled to England because there was a, there's a warrant out for his arrest in India. His financial stylings. Due to his financial stylings, specifically around uh, the collapse of Kingfisher Airlines, which, as I recall, never turned a single profit in all the years that he owned it. Correct. Um, well, last week he was, uh, it was Monday, he was arrested by the British, uh, the police in Britain. Oh. Because of said outstanding warrant. Now, it does not look like he is being extradited yet, but it was the extradition team that brought him in. Oh, so um, India has requested extradition, and that's the process. Thing. Yeah, but it's it's not clear as to how this whole thing is working because the next day he was allowed to post bail and leave. So I, I, I don't quite understand what's happening here, okay. but he has been arrested. There is a hearing that is scheduled for, I believe it's, uh, it is, in fact, May 17th. That's a case management hearing. But as for what the next steps are from here, I don't know. I think it's at the very least unlikely that he will be departing England to attend a race anytime soon. Mm-hmm. That's most likely. My guess is, and this is just generally my guess as to what the process is going through, is India has reached out to the U.K., for an extradition 
So now the UK has to go through their process to determine whether or not they want to extradite this guy. So that would be the case management hearing to pick him up on a warrant. So Britain's issue, you know, Britain's going to then issue him a summons for him to come in and explain why he should not be extradited to India. But then if that's the case, I would be, well, then why did you arrest him on Monday anyway just to let him out? Well, they've got to bring him in, explain the situation, obviously, and, um, you know, start a whole process. They've had to have him post bail money because otherwise he could just pick up and leave the country. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, I think, where that's coming about. There's a whole process. I'm sure it is tied up with heavy-duty legal strings. And, of course, I'm sure that not only does Vijay Malia have financial stylings, he probably has some legal stylings, too, that will aid him. Possibly. Well, let's talk about Bahrain and the race. Because we promised last week in our, what was it, 14 hour long podcast it wasn't that long it it, it, it was an hour and a half but it wasn't 14 <laughs> hours um that we would since we did not cover the race that was going on the weekend that we were podcasting and because there was so much else to discuss that we would talk about the race this week which we are now firmly between weeks of races so i think the the big elephant in the room to discuss here because it was arguably one of the biggest disappointments of the race, and it wasn't necessarily his fault, was Valtteri Bottas. Yeah. You know, he got his first ever pole position, and his pace was pretty dismal. He struggled up front, um, which backed up the entire field, which, I mean, ultimately that— led to a more interesting race in, in the rest of the, the grid, but he backed up the entire field because he was struggling on pace. Um, and it was because of Valtteri's struggles that even Mercedes is rethinking a few things. So what happened with Valtteri? First yeah, of all, that's happened? the first thing. Um, the reason why he was struggling on the first stint, there was a tire pressure issue. On the grid during... For, as they were forming up, um, there was a generator failure in the Mercedes cart. And as a result, Mercedes was not able to bleed off the tire pressure like they needed to. So Valtteri's tires were running at a much higher tire pressure than they should. Well, I say much higher. It was one to two pounds higher than they should have been. Which we know that every ounce, every PSI, every thing counts right and and well in this case it wasn't even so much the weight on the car it was because the tires were overinflated. um he didn't have the contact patch shaped appropriately so he didn't have the traction that he needed and on top of not having the traction he was dealing with especially in the rears the tires were overheating well that's what i meant it was like every component of these things whether they're ounces or psi in the tires or temperature in the tires or you know, whether or not a bug lands on the front wing, <laughs> those all have very significant effects on these hyper-engineered cars. Yeah. That's the point I was making. Okay. So as a result of that, he didn't. He was struggling for traction 
and again struggling for pace because he was dealing with overheating tires towards the end of the stint that should not have occurred in the first place correct so there was that issue we haven't gotten a clear actually we did get a clear understanding of when he finally got to the pits during that that safety car period um thanks to the incident with flanch stroll mm-hmm. um we did get an explanation as to why his pit stop was slow and Lewis's pit stop was slow, which also led to another issue. Um, it was the left front um, gun, tire gun, um, they kept losing power on it. So they had power issues. They were having power issues with the gun itself. And as a result, that slowed down his change. Lewis trying to to slow things down a little bit and give himself a little more room, um, he got himself into a little bit of trouble on his entrance in. He didn't want to necessarily be double stacked behind Valtteri. He slowed down a bit more. He started weaving a little. He was caught out a little bit by Valtteri's pit stop taking a little longer than it should have. Um, but as a result, he ended up with a five second penalty for obstructing Daniel Ricardo on his entrance from Lewis weaving around a little bit on the pit lane to slow things down a bit. Lewis has taken blame for that penalty, but it was probably that penalty that cost him the possibility to even fight for a win. Right. So, yeah, there was that double disaster. But Lewis has accepted blame for that. Uh, As a result of this whole thing, Mercedes is actually rethinking their strategy. Now, as you'll recall, they have said for the last set, well, since Lewis and Nico have been paired, that, well, with the exception of that one time in Malaysia, they were going to avoid team orders. Mm -hmm. They want the drivers to race. They don't want to interfere with that. However, they now are acknowledging, especially in, I think it was the second stint, um, that if they had told Valtteri to let Lewis go and they had issued that team order earlier, Lewis might have had a better chance at chasing down uh, Seb. Possibly with that idea of if he could chase down Seb and then get into some clear air, he might have had the ability to open up those five seconds that were needed to overcome the penalty. Right. But because they held Lewis up behind Valtteri for as long as they did, they took that away. So they are now rethinking their team order strategy. Interesting. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Um, I don't know. I I don't think that Valtteri is as strong as Nico was of a competitor to Lewis. So I can see the point there. But also knowing that Valtteri had one arm tied behind his back. And I think that's the point. Is I think that has to play into their decision of using team orders versus not using team orders. Yeah, and, and I think that's what they're going to look at is this idea of, yeah, we get it. We, we don't want to favor a driver and turn around and go, you know, you're both are doing well, but we think Lewis is going to have a better chance, and he's our number one driver, so put him up there. Uh, but in a situation where one driver is struggling for whatever reason, don't let him hold up the other driver. I think that's what they're looking at. And I don't think that's been their policy in the past. Or at least in the last couple of years. Lewis also got himself in a little bit of trouble with the the bosses of the Formula One group. Trying to to get there. Um, We know that social media restrictions have been 
eased. Yes, relaxed. They haven't been lifted completely. There are still things that the broadcasters are allowed to show and do that the drivers and the teams are not allowed to do and should not be sharing through their social media outlets like, oh, in-car footage of your lap. Oh. Lewis apparently did that. Put it up on his Instagram page. He was told that he's not allowed to do that. So Lewis did comply when he got the direction to take it down, and he did not complain about it. But he was advised that only broadcasters are allowed to show in-car footage on the track. Okay. So there are At limits. At least it was not the telemetry of his car at McLaren. Yeah, there was that, yeah. Well, that he got in trouble by the team, not from Formula One management. Right. So but, you know, he has not always been making wise Social, social media, media decisions. Yeah. Um, Lance Stroll. Your favorite guy. It was not his fault this week. It wasn't. However. You're going to put a giant asterisk on it. Can we just leave it at it wasn't his fault? I, I do have to point out that he has yet to finish a race. Yes. Three races in. Much like McLaren, he has yet to finish a race. Okay, so maybe he's on the wrong team. But to be clear, yes, this time his incident was not his fault. Um, actually, it was um, Carlos Sainz who was found at fault for their collision as Carlos was coming out of the pits for what the marshals labeled as a, quote, very optimistic attempt at passing, <laughs> passing Lance. <laughs> That, that 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 was not my words. That is from the marshals. A very optimistic attempt. <laughs> they did say that the marshals were going to be less restrictive this year. So I'm assuming that has extended into their descriptions of incidents. Um, instead of saying poor pass or poor attempt at pass, optimistic attempt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Considering Carlos Sainz ran headfirst into Lance Stroll's side pod, it was optimistic a attempt yeah. is um, optimistic. <laughs> and this was the return. I don't know if it was triumphant, but it was the return of Pascal Verlein to Formula One. Yay! And, and his first opportunity to drive the Sauber on a race weekend. So, did he feel fully up to speed and strong with his extra weeks off of vacation? Actually, he did. So, um, he was proud of himself. He for. said he, he was very surprised by his fitness. Um, he says, overall, he's, he felt very good coming out of it. He said, there's a little bit of pain. Um, and, obviously, he's tired because this is the first race he had done. But he's surprised at how well he feels coming out of this. Now, what we have found out, there, there has been some additional information released about his injury. Um, Does it less wussify him? Well, he was in one of the, the full-body upper torso uh, harness-type things for a few. He compressed a couple of vertebrae. Oh, Ouch. Um, which would be why the training didn't happen like it needed to. 
Um, the injury was fairly significant. And, and the word of this is only coming out now. Pascal actually posted post-race a picture of him in the harness like a week after the crash happened. Mm. Um, he was pretty well trussed up from this. So that now makes a little bit more sense. And I think if that message, and, and I understand the need and the desire for privacy, it's, it's a medical issue, but I think if that was managed better by he, either him or the team or his management team or whomever, that might have shut some of this down. Yeah, they, they could have gotten in front of it a lot better. I can tell you just personally, I compressed a vertebra when I was in high school, mm-hmm. um, having a really horribly poor grace fall. And I hurt for months after that. And like the weirdest things, obviously I'm not a racing driver. I wasn't trying to drive, but the concept of stairs made me cry for at least a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Sadly, my high school had classes on two floors. <laughs> Um, and there was no elevator as an option. So that I can understand. It is not a pleasant experience. So after all of that, Pascal has also said that he wants to return to the race of champions. Oh. Now he says— With less crashing this time. Well, less crashing. He actually he does not plan to—as of right now, he does not plan to drive in 2018. But he wants to do the event again. He does want to at least attend the event. He said the parties are great. Oh, okay. Um, it, from that perspective, he wants to go back to him, but he also wants to compete at some point. Although he's going to sit out next year. Okay. So yeah, he wants to go back and do it again. Well, that's that racing driver mentality of let's go, let's go, let's go. And then, you know, speaking of. Surprises, underperforming, failure to finish a race. We're talking about Honda, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Um, that would be Honda. <laughs> Before we even get into Honda, let, let's talk about Fernando. Because, you know, this, despite the fact that they had not finished a race, and race one and race two, as you recall, Fernando thought they were awesome races. Yeah, they, they were, were best just of his career. best of his career. There was a lot of talk of the motivation behind McLaren turning around and sending Fernando off to to Indy was to keep him happy and engaged and motivated. And you know, we certainly hadn't actually, if anything, Fernando had been at least for the first two races taking a page page right out of the Jensen Button book of towing the company line and enthusiasm that no matter what it is we're doing awesome we aimed for 13th place and then we heard on the radio in bahrain first there was this i have a race with less power in my life it started there and then it just went downhill (laughs) because the next one we heard from fernando was this He was, what, 300 meters behind us on the straight? Fernando, we're considering plan B. How are the tires? Do whatever you want, mate. (laughs) Whatever you want, mate. And then, ultimately, he didn't finish the race anyway because the engine gave out again. Okay, so we're three races in. Are we predicting 20 grid penalties for engine use by what? um, Barcelona? 
I think so. see that's and and I haven't looked up what the engine count is in terms of consumed engines. In theory, if they have every one of these engines they they fully replaced because it's blown up and they haven't been able to repair it. In theory, Honda could roll out a replacement and an upgrade package whenever they want at this point because mm-hmm. they're going to get penalties. But and and this was one of the things that that yeah, at first when I heard about it coming from Renault, I was like, well, that's stupid. Why are they waiting this long? And then I was reminded they only get four engine changes a year. So when a team is roll, thinking about rolling out their upgrade packages, they need to do it based on their planned engine replacement schedule to begin with. Otherwise, they're dealing with penalties, right. which is why we were hearing this talk that teams were waiting to somewhere between – either Montreal or Barcelona or Monaco to decide as to when they were going to roll that upgrade because it had to be within the engine replacement schedule. But again, if you're Honda and you've already turned around and you've blown up this many engines and you're going to take a penalty, why not roll it out earlier if it's working? If it's working. That's the key piece. It's got to be a working engine, because which Honda still has problems trying to figure out. Well, yeah, that that's the next thing, because first we got word that Honda was planning on trying, after the race this, this week, um, we had two days of in-season testing over at Bahrain uh, for teams to, you know, this was the unrestricted, and it was a hot weather test, and it was hot. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were in the desert. Um, there, there were complaints that tires were melting. and I mean, it, it was not comfortable to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got word that Honda was going to trial some new ideas now, my understanding was after that, that was what we had originally heard. And in my understanding, at least day one, that Honda didn't actually change anything because they were still trying to figure out why the engines blew up as many times as they did during the race weekend. Mm. So they put out um, their young driver, uh, Oliver something. Ollie? Yeah. So what did Ollie do? Well, they, they put him out on day one and the engine blew up after like two laps probably not ollie's fault no it wasn't his fault now they replaced it they put him back in and he got in a handful of laps on day one so it wasn't a complete loss but it was a bit of a loss but then day two comes around okay. stoffel van dorn's in the car because fernando's like screw this i'm out of here and goes I, gotta off go to, to- I gotta go uh, Watch indie cars go around this. Yeah, I'm I'm off to Alabama. You guys have fun. <laughs> and uh, Stoffel the flying waffle. The the unstoffable flying waffle. Flying <laughs> waffle. Um, I'm sorry. I giggle about Stoffel the waffle every. Time. I know that's really <laughs> that was that was good. Uh, hopefully he em- embraces the the flying waffle because that that's gonna stick for a while. <laughs> um, but Stoffel went out there. Um, McLaren completed a full testing program, 81 laps, and posted the fourth best time. Did they change the engine? Did they try this new engine that they might have had? Or did they finally, like, you know, get the gunk out of the oil or something? Well, actually, McLaren can't explain why the engine didn't blow up. They have no idea what happened. Do 
we have an audible facepalm somewhere they- in our... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows why the Honda engine worked on day two. I wish I was kidding here. Okay, I, I just need to make sure <clears throat> I understand this. And I do mean this with all sincerity. The people at Honda do know how to make an engine, correct? They're not using the Idiot's Guide to Formula One engine book, are they? The, Eric Bouillet's exact words. If we knew. This is the problem. I don't know. Everything has worked perfectly. We are even actually pushing a little bit in terms of settings, trying to use the opportunity, and everything is working. This is a proper test today. Everything you plan, you can test it and do back to back, so it's very good. (laughs) He says, it's very difficult to understand what went wrong. We obviously changed the MGUH, and yesterday morning after two laps, the MGUH was gone. We changed the engine and did 17 laps yesterday, but we couldn't find anything wrong physically on the car. So I think it's going to be complicated for Honda to understand what's wrong. It's maybe coming from a batch problem. Maybe some anomalies are car-related. There is no common cause. Oh, my word. They need to get a forensic analyst on this thing because that's what they need to figure out. You know, once again, we find ourselves going back to 2015 when this whole partnership started and comments that were being made all the way back in 2015. I mean, this this was Jensen in Melbourne at race one. I think normally you don't understand other people's packages, but at the moment we don't understand ours fully. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's where we are. Can you imagine how hard it must be? Think about this for a minute. You and I go into an office five days a week. Mm -hmm. So imagine if every time you walked into the office, your desk didn't work. Not your computer, your (laughs) desk. (laughs) And it was day to day, they'd change out your desk. And the next day, your desk didn't work. And then the next day, you go in and they change out your desk again. And it worked. But nobody could understand why that was the desk that worked. And then you move to an, a new office, and your desk doesn't work again. And then you change offices, and your desk doesn't work again. That is what Fernando and Stoffel, the waffle, are dealing with. Is every day they go into the office, and their desk either works or it doesn't work. Or maybe it works for the morning, and they get up and go to lunch, and then they come back, and their desk doesn't work again. I cannot imagine how incredibly frustrating it is to your very office is non-functional 70% of the time and all the engineers in the office building have no idea why. And it's a handmade office. That's the other thing I think we have to, <laughs> we have to point out here is Eric Boulier might be right. It could be uh, that engine's build there could be a burr in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. These engines are hand-built. Yep. One-time use. It's like <clears throat> disposable. Thousands of millions of dollars of disposability here. But... I, I don't think that, that that's... A hun- I mean, it's pretty close because these cars don't necessarily go off to the crusher afterwards. They will... 
They will have a new life. When, as when the teams are car. proud of the cars, you know, they, they parade them out to Goodwood and stuff like that. So at which point these engines are being refurbished so that they can be run again in these um, these demonstration events. Right. Now, I mean, the last th- retirement life. Now, the last 3 years of these McLaren cars, I don't think that either team either group is really going to want to parade them out ever again. Just saying. Well, you know, sometimes you can be famous for doing things well, and sometimes you can be famous for doing things poorly. I don't think that McLaren is going to want to go, "Hey, this is the we're worst going- car we've ever built." <laughs> we're we're going to Goodwood. Let's go run our crap can. <laughs> no. They're the- going to look to one of Art and Senna's cars. Well, always going to pull out an Art and Senna car. Um but it's the it 20th be- anniversary of our worst ever car. Let's go run it. No. You know, it could be that Somebody in the Honda factory got the IKEA instructions backwards, like two pages out of order in the build process of the engines. And that's what the problem is. It could be nothing more than somebody had some one human had a bad day and they'll never figure it out. I mean, it could be that the engine is just designed like crap, too. Or it could be that the one engine that they got 81 laps on was the only worthwhile built engine that they've got and everything else is crap. Yep. I mean, I I, I I go back to my analogy. It would be like showing up to your office every single day and not knowing whether or not the lights are going to turn on. And nobody understand or could explain why your lights can't stay on. So let's look forward. We've already looked forward to Monaco. <laughs> We've ignored every race between here and Monaco. Let's look forward past Monaco. Past Monaco? Let's go past Monaco. Let's go to Montreal. Okay. still think we should go to Montreal. I was going to say, are you offering? <laughs> <laughs> no, there there are changes being made. You know, everybody's talking upgrades. Montreal's making upgrades. Just like Melbourne was forced to make upgrades because of the increased speed of the cars, Montreal is making some upgrades as well. Now, they're not changing the layout of the track. This is mainly around safety features. Okay. Um, so most of the guardrails and some 5,000 tires will be removed and replaced by TechBro barriers. Uh, as a reminder, these are red and white pl- uh, barriers made of polyethylene and filled with plastic uh, foam and even sand sometimes, and offer significantly better energy dissipation when a car hits them. So it, it's pretty important. Uh, they're also, and, and again, this is something that I'm not a huge fan of, but the FIA is pushing Montreal to replace the gravel traps um, with asphalt so that it's run. There's asphalt runoff as opposed to the gravel traps. So you're not dead in the water. Well, it's it's not so much that it's dead in the water. It's that if you hit the gravel trap at the wrong angle, because the gravel stops the car as quickly as it does, and there's a lot of energy, mm-hmm. um, the car stops quickly and then goes flying and flipping, <laughs> like we saw with Fernando Alonso. Right. So they're they're trying. That's the whole reason for it. Um, again, not a huge fan of it, but I understand. The last thing is. They actually want to make some changes to the Wall of Champions and are no. making changes to the Wall of Champions. No. Um, 
they're going to modify the angle. And we don't know how much that's going to impact it. But they want to modify the angle of the wall because the FIA believes that it is um, a little more dangerous than it has been in the past. What that how that angle is going to impact anything, we don't know. The wall is going to be there, but there's going to be a change in the angle. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, so work is currently in action at corners 1 and 2, 5, 13, and 14. Uh, and then work will begin on corners 7, 8, and 10. And a safer barrier, which is what's on most of the NASCAR ovals, will replace the steel guardrails in corner 5. Um, according to the promoter of the Grand Prix, engineers and workers expect to have the work finished by mid-May. And then our last story, it's a relatively minor one, um, despite all the, the press and hype and pictures, because I, I think in the end it doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but Renault released at the end of, I believe it was the Beijing Auto Show? One of the auto shows. They rolled out their vision for F1 10 years down the road. Okay. Um, they call it the RS2017. It is their concept Formula One car. That was the 2027. Or 2027, thank you. You're welcome. Um, but it is their vision for Formula One. So they've kept the wide tires. They have simplified a lot of the aero. So you don't have all the little itty-bitty turning veins and stuff like that. They've added headlights. They're LED light bars, but they've, they've added headlights. Um one of the other things that they have brought back, though, is active suspension. Interesting. Which I, 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 I don't disagree with. Uh, they also envision it to be an enclosed cockpit um, attached on one side, well, hinged on one side so that it would flip open t to one end. Uh, but it would be a clear uh, canopy that would... And it looks almost like they have dropped down the height of the cockpit a bit because to instead maximize the visibility that this canopy would provide so that fans could see better into the cockpit and see what's happening. As part of this, they've also introduced or released their concept for a new helmet for the drivers, which features um, a much wider, clear visor so that we can see more of the driver's face. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so my only statement to this when I read the article and looked at the pictures and went, oh, okay, nifty, whatever, and moved on with my life, mm -hmm. this is my whole thought. So, Renault, why are you spending so much time on the concept car for 10 years in the future? Could you work on your engine today? Well... How about the fact that our works team is now, you know, fighting with the bottom end of the pack and they should be up towards the top my guess is that this was a design brief that was handled handed either to a bunch of interns or trainee folks that they don't really trust to actually work on the car well yes and that's that's where this came from it wasn't you know an actual somebody who's important i understand that but you know we're still talking about division of resources here okay and I'm like, you know, it'd be one thing if Mercedes came out with it or Ferrari came out with something like that because they're Ferrari running did, at the top. though. Yeah, they're running at the top of the pack. Yeah. 
I just I, don't like to see divided effort. Honestly, it would be like Honda coming out with something like this, you know? Honestly, though, I think this was more relevant than uh, Helmut Marco's latest comments that Red Bull is going to leave Formula One if Formula One doesn't do what they want. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, so is that our show? That is everything that we had for the week. So next week we head off to Russia where um, – They're talking about a cold snap. I hadn't noticed that. I was thinking more that uh, Daniel Kavia got to revisit the location, the race that got him demoted. <laughs> Maybe he'll have a better race this year. He, he's uh, been cracking jokes about uh, Sebastian Vettel's torpedo comments. Oh. Um <laughs> <laughs> what what I can't tell is that him trying to put a pretty face on it or if he's really just making fun of Sebastian. Also possible. Not sure. <laughs> also possible. Um, on that note, I think that we will uh, ask everyone to leave us comments at the various places that you can comment. There's the website, theblokeinthebird.com. There's Facebook. There's also reviews on iTunes and... Where's our other spot? Stitcher. Stitcher. I almost said Spotify because you did it so many times <laughs> in the beginning. That's, and I'm that's, like, Spot, Stitch, Spot. That's what? why I wasn't jumping in because I was wondering what you were going to do after you <laughs> mocked me for so long. Because you could never get it right. And you're the one that's doing all of that post-production work. Um, or, you know, just reach out and give us a, a review or a comment. Uh, question what do you think of these various things that we talked about should you know what do you I you know I, I've noticed that our numbers have started to trend up again which I, I, I see what happens see this happen at the start of every season so it's a question of is, is this new season enthusiasm and then folks get bored or what but you know if you're a new listener go ahead and uh, drop us a note and say hi yeah. stick with us we get it more interesting Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is there is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.